Hey, dude, I, I didn't know until I started, I didn't know until I started um, researching just a little bit today, and I told you I was not going to do the normal amount of research that I do before a podcast, um, because I just asked you, like, last night if you could do sort of an emergency pod with me, but uh, that you're a fiction writer, you were a fiction writer first, and, and um, a highly regarded short story writer, which is a form that I absolutely love, so I can't wait to dive into your fiction, man, I just haven't read it. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, it's It's been a really weird few years. You know, I actually, I you know, I didn't really get a start in politics until 2015, 2016, when I started going to all these Trump rallies, sort of as a way to not work on a failed novel. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it was like I had this novel that had ballooned up to like 550 pages with no end in sight. And I was like, I need to do something to get my mind off this because I'm not good being idle. And so, you know, like any normal person, I started going into Trump rallies and I, I started realizing in these Trump rallies that like there was something really ugly festering in the country. And I, I never expected that it would take over my life for the next four or five years. I, well, I had no clue I was going to end up in this place. Well, I'll, I'll say, um, and hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Jared Yates Sexton. Uh, if you don't know who he is. He's a terrific, uh, a terrific thinker and, and writer, a professor, uh, and has studied this phenomenon of Trumpism, but, but, but it, it seems to have stoked a curiosity in him that led him to study the history of our democracy. Uh, and his latest book, American Rule, really talks about uh, the ways in which this was predicted, but also the ways in which... Uh, what we're worried about now has kind of happened at various times uh, during our nation's uh, history. And but but as I started to say here, I didn't realize you were a fiction writer first. And, and since you are, and since you're a uh, well-read person, it's funny. I went back today and I read the first um, like ten pages of the View from Mrs. Thompson's, uh, you know, the Wallace piece, and which was written right after 9/11, and was about this sort of coming together. This the idea that the American flag uh, didn't have to be one sides and that there was a way to sort of find common ground um, in certain core values. But the way you, it seems to me, the way you think about this, those core values even are another mirage that this is all exposing. Yeah, I had to, one of the things I didn't understand uh, in a lot of ways was I didn't understand exactly how we lived in a country where we were told consistently, you know, that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice yeah. and and that there, we were always progressing. And then, of course, to take American history and that as I knew it and the conventional narrative as I knew it and to plunk Donald John Trump at the <laughs> end of it, you know, it just sort of, um, you know, the three act don't, structure. Don't say end. Really don't say end. Don't say end. Yeah, no kidding. And, you know, so I was like, I need to go back and relearn this thing because, um, you know, one of the reasons I was interested and fascinated with Trumpism in the first place, and I think one of the reasons I was able to sort of understand what this threat was to begin with is because, you know, I, I my family, I grew up in like a small town family of laborers and factory workers. And what I had recognized with my, my family and Trump is that there was this inherent fascistic, racist, misogynistic yeah. impulse that was at the heart of all this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, meanwhile, I'd grown up in this background that uh, my religion was completely intertwined with the mythology of America and white identity politics and apocalypticism and conspiracy theories. So what I started to see with Trump was that there was something latent 
in America that was coming to the surface. And I needed to understand where that came from. And so I went back to the very beginning. I decided I was going to completely relearn the American uh, story. And what I realized is that the story I had learned was a fictional narrative. Uh, It was a salesman's job, uh, basically meant to sell America to the American people and then eventually the world. And when you actually look at real American history, what actually took place and you compare it with the mythology, you start to realize that we actually don't know very much about this country. And and that's why we've reached this point. And we're sort of lost in one conflicting illusion after another. And I think the way out is to understand what those illusions are and what the contradictions tell us. Well, when you bring up religion and and, and this connection between an ecclesiastical apocalyptic viewpoint and this desire that seems to have never left for a strong man leader. Uh, What do you, can you tease out a little bit what you were talking about, about those connections? And then we'll go back into the history. There are many things I want to ask you about that, but uh, you know, you say the thing about the moral, you know, um, Martin Luther King's uh, line about the, the, the arc, the moral arc of the universe. And, but there's another theory, right, that 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 has been propagated for a really long time, which is that if you let people have, and this is what Ben Franklin was worried about, according to your book, uh, and I haven't come back to the primary sources, but your book really makes a convincing argument, uh, which is that if you let people uh, actually exercise what they think is their free will for long enough, you are going to end up with a fascist. So can you just talk a little bit about all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's weird, you know, when you put out one book, and then you start working on another, all these disparate threads start putting together. So I'm actually studying like the history of Western civilization to understand how it arrived at fascism. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back in the Middle Ages with like Charlemagne. And I'm back in this point where, you know, you have this king who's just massacring people left and right, but the church loves him because he enforces their doctrine. Right. He, he, he pushes yeah. what they believe in their orthodoxy. And so as a result, you know, the church always and consistently since it gained power has always embraced what you would call a divine agent, which is somebody who's willing to go out and do the ugly work of bloodletting and oppression. And there's been one after another. And when you actually start, you know, putting those stories back to back to back, you end up at the point where you have a Donald Trump who's obviously not actually religious, yes. but he makes an incredible bad ram for these people. He makes an incredible catalyst for them. And so what I came to realize with American rule was that this idea, and, and I thought, I, I'm very glad that you brought up the Martin Luther King aspect of this because Martin Luther King has actually been sort of taken away and used as a weapon against change in a way. You know, you actually look at the 1960s and the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King was actually an incredible radical and pushed a lot of revolutionary tactics to try and- They assassinated him. I mean, they assassinated him. Now he's been recast. Yeah, now he's been recast. Uh, in their eyes as someone who was patient. that the, the point wasn't that the arc... <laughs> yes, thank you for saying this. Very important to say it. He wasn't saying, so let's wait forever for the thing to change. He was trying to make change happen as quickly as he felt it was possible. Well, and what's amazing is if you actually go back, he was one of the most hated men in America. Yes. Like yes. he was despised. And now, of course, and, and this is one of the... Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this. One of the really disgusting, poisonous things that uh, systems of power do is that they take threats to their power and they absorb them and they sort of use them as a weapon to continue power. And Martin Luther King is unfortunately one of the figures that's happened to. But what I've realized is that America's story tells Americans, you don't have to do anything. 
you don't have to fight. You don't have to push. You don't have to really put your shoulder into the wheel at any given point. We are an exceptional country. The only thing that you have to do is be wary of anyone who tells you that we are not exceptional and perfect. Mm. And so it becomes a passive experience. And it actually takes the power out of uh, the citizenry, which is one of the reasons we're in the situation. Well, we are pa- pa- passive and, and Jared, uh, something that actually almost invites a lack of critical thinking and reason, right? We, you don't rely on your reason. Don't reason through these questions. Believe something and believe it hard enough that actually you won't even listen to reason. Yeah. And there's actually, you know, as people who are artists, you know, we, we know that we're often plagued with self-doubt and, you know, crippling moments of, of introspection and overthought. Right. And there's actually sort of, um, I don't know, there's like a freeing release to the idea of following orders that mm. I, I, I think a lot of people have realized. And, and I think this is something that Trumpism has actually tapped into. And, and more or less with the Trumpist base, what you now have is you have a group of people who have been told, you know what, you feel powerless, you feel like you're not capable of doing anything. And by the way, I think one of the important things that's happening right now, one of the defining problems and crises in modern politics is the idea that, that has... Uh, just absolutely taken over our culture, that politics can't actually change anything. That there's no future that doesn't look like this one or somehow or another worse. There's no way to change it for the better. And so give up on politics meaning something and join a movement that makes you feel powerful. It gives you a deeper feeling of of belonging and power the way that, I don't know, fascist organizations put an armband on you and put a gun in your hands and say, oh, suddenly you're you're not weak any longer. You're a cog of a giant death machine. Yeah, throughout, I mean, throughout history. And I loved, uh, today you, you pointed out in, in a tweet the similarities between what, what happened uh, yesterday uh, in D.C. and what happened in 1925 in Germany. I've been reading Ron Rosenbaum's book, uh, Explaining Hitler, and uh, reread Rise of the Third Reich when, when Trump came to power. And uh, the simil- if you're, if you're, and, and have watched the movie Conspiracy, which I, I recommend over and over to everybody to, to watch because it's about uh, what happened at the Wannsee Conference. And... Uh, which I don't know if you've ever seen that, Jared, but you should watch that movie. If you oh, that's an excellent it. movie. Yeah, uh, be- because we're living through all these things. But I want to just stop for one second and ask you uh, emotionally a question, because I have found this to be so jarring emotionally. Uh, when you started to, because to me, it seems like for you, like it was a little bit of the red pill, blue pill thing. And it, it seems like you had an a, almost a moment of awakening as you started going to these things. And what I wonder about, as you say, as an artist, as a writer, as a sensitive person, but as someone who's trying to reason his way through the world, how, uh, what was the realization like for you that some forces were using this incredibly uh, cynical approach to grabbing power and using levers like religion and this, I, this, uh, uh, trading this emotional feeling for uh, uh, what they actually believe in. I mean, I mean, did it send you into a depression, a funk? Did it fire you up in anger? Was it waves of different things? Uh, be, because I think a lot of us have felt so shaken by this, but, but you were also moved to action. So can you just talk a little bit about what that all felt like to you? 
Well, uh, I'll start before I started covering politics. I was okay. actually much more depressed and nihilistic before I started covering politics. Uh, because really? I f- yeah, because I felt very powerless. I, I, I felt very discouraged about right. what was happening in the country and what was happening in my life. But I also lacked the language to express it or to understand it. And, you know, I, I actually, when I started diving deep into politics and I started finding all this stuff, which, by the way, is very traumatic, awful stuff. I mean, when you actually look at the history of power, um, I mean, there, you know, you can live your entire life during a time of, of oppression and never see anything better. I mean, yes. uh, lifespans are so short and political movements can be so large and drawn out. Um, but I actually started, once I started to understand it, I, I started to feel power in that. Um, there have been moments where, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I started covering the Trump campaign um, and I started gaining something of a, of a soapbox or notoriety yeah. or whatever, I would have people, I live in I live in rural Georgia. I live in a small college town in Georgia. I started having like neo-Nazi people show up at my door. I started having people trying to break into my house. And it was a really terrifying moment until it suddenly, it was like, oh, that's what happens when you have rising fascism is if you actually speak out against it. And, and, you know, any journalist, writer, artist, um, person of color or woman who is active on the internet or even mentions a political thought understands this. Eventually, you realize it's part and parcel of what happens with a fascistic movement. And at that moment, I was like, oh, this means that I'm, you know, to, to steal a phrase from these people, oh, I'm over the target. And, you know, it was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm starting to piece these things together. And through knowledge, which if you actually look through history, both America and world history, you realize the only thing that ever defeats these people and the only thing that ever actually defeats oppression is knowledge of how that oppression and power works. Well, let's talk about that, because while that takes a long time. Yep. So, right, from from the Weimar Republic uh, to Hitler going out of power, how long? 20 years? Yep. So uh, it takes a really long time because until people, I would assert, and you know much more about this in the, in the micro, you've been studying really closely now, but I would say uh, uh, doesn't it have to do with uh, eventually the citizenry at large starts to feel so much pressure and pain because these regimes don't actually work effectively. Mo- oh, they're other totally than in, incompetent. And totally other than in China, right, where they figured out some other thing. But generally, right, they, they don't, their incompetence, uh, they, the, the, the policies don't work. The citizenry goes hungry, uh, realizes it's terrible. That's when they decide they want to learn. They never seem to want, we never seem to want to learn at the beginning. So that four years ago, five years ago, when people like uh, me, like when I was talking about fascism, I was just shouted down constantly yep. by people saying I was an alarmist and that's craziness. And he was elected and, and, um, and you know, you could look, I, I spent the whole time he was running telling everyone if he won, he was going to be a, a fascist. He was going to try to, do, you know, stay in power beyond his, his term. Uh, and I wasn't alone in that, but I would say that all of us who did that, Jared, were told we were alarmist, crazy people. So what's that? What is the resistance? In other words, let's say 10% of the people were in line, wanted this, right? 8% of the people were shouting about it. But then there's still 80% of the people who are, it seemed to me, disinterested in engaging in a conversation about fascism. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of answers that come together. Like all of these things, there it's always a knot. It's always like when you pull, you know, your earbuds out of a out of a, <laughs> a drawer and you got to start pulling <laughs> the threads apart. Yeah, I, you know, in this case, I think first and foremost, it's frightening to admit what's going on in this country. And and you know, I'll have moments even during the Trump presidency. I've talked about this yeah. before, where you have to compartmentalize the fact that Donald Trump is the president of the United States and there is a rising fascism in the country, you know? And then suddenly you'll be driving somewhere or chopping up vegetables for dinner and you're like, "Oh my god, this is like reality." It's like Yes. It's like driving in a car for hours and forgetting that you're driving a car, yes. you know, and, and suddenly you wake up yes. and you're driving 85 miles an hour and you're like, oh my God, this is a death machine. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like that is one part of it. I also think America, uh, and you know, I was, I was jousting with some people the other day about like Marvel movies and Avengers and stuff like that. I think that there is a culture, not just of distraction, but entertainments that tell us, don't worry, other people have it. The system is safe. You don't have to be afraid of this, right? There are people working behind the scenes. And by the way, this was fostered in a large way by, you know, CIA operations in the 1950s and 1960s. And this idea that the so-called deep state has it, don't even worry about it. But I also think there's a third thing that happens here. And I, I, I think when it comes to things like the media, journalism, all of those, you have to consider that the people who are sort of the gatekeepers of information, they have reached the higher echelons of society, both in terms of influence and economics. And to sit there and start having a conversation about rising fascism in the country means you also have to have a conversation about the parts of the country that are defective and the parts of the, the country that don't actually work the right way. And yes. when you start having that conversation, you start talking about things like broken meritocracies. And all of a sudden that means maybe as, you know, and just as a, as a case study, maybe as a white man who was born into privilege and maybe was in a family that got them in certain positions, maybe all of a sudden that narrative of who you are doesn't hold up when you start actually questioning the idea of fascism and what fascism is and how it takes hold in, in, in countries. So I think there is a larger cultural experience, but there is a personal experience that also keeps people from being able to admit the actual danger that we're in. Right. Ironically, I, I mean, I am exactly what you described. I'm a, 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 you know, a successful white male who graduated college without any debt because my parents were rich enough to pay for college. And, and, and as such, I, I just feel a responsibility, you know, because I, right. because uh, it, it's been so much easier for me than it would be for, than, than it is for most people. So, so, and I'm so aware of it and, and, and have been my whole life actually aware of that sort of insane privilege of like no college debt, let's say. So that's why it's partially harder for me to understand why people, why people of privilege who do have microphones are the ones always preaching, calm down, there's stability here where, you know, and it seems like what you're saying is they're actually afraid of what they might lose. Well, so one thing to think about in all of this, and I think it always gets lost in it because, you know, when we talk about fascism, it's almost impossible. And, you know, you're, you're, you're in entertainment, you know this. It's like, it's almost impossible to talk about certain things without, without thinking about the popular culture that surrounds it. Yes. Right. So like when you start talking about fascism, all of a sudden you think about every World War II movie we've ever seen, every World War II, you know, show or documentary about Mussolini or Hitler. And here's the thing about it. 
we we have not really been taught what fascism is. Uh, yes, we how, think, yes, we think it's we think it's just a bunch of evil people who gathered together and just managed to gain power, and that they were just pure evil, and they managed to you know hypnotize a population, and that's how these things occurred. But what you actually find when you investigate the actual history of fascism and the, and the actual components of it, first of all, and, and this is a really hard thing to swallow, fascism in the 20th century was not just an aberration of Western Europe. It was inspired in large part by the United States of America. I mean, you know, someone like Hitler absolutely admired America. Uh, we had a system of eugenics in this country. We would send over eugenicists over to Germany to help them set up their eugenics system. Uh, you know, he he talked constantly about how he was inspired by our Confederacy, the genocide of the native population, Jim right. Crow. And so we actually had an ideological link between the United States of America and Nazi Germany. And in fact, and, and this doesn't get talked about, except for there, I was very happy about this, Philip Roth's um, Plot Against America, of course, has just aired in America. You you find out that there was a burgeoning fascistic movement in this country. I mean, you know, the the American Nazi Party was very strong. They, I think they had something like 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden, you know, yeah. for this rally with swastikas and George Washington. Meanwhile, you had other fascist organizations that were gaining uh, purchase and power in the in the wake of the Great Depression. Well, what what we also don't talk about is this. To deal with fascism, to head it off at the curve, it's necessary to understand that fascism occurs when capitalism fails and when inequality grows to the point where people aren't going to take it anymore and they start talking about things like socialism and social justice. Capitalists often work with fascists to put those people down. To put they, that move, to put the uh, rebellion, even if it's a socioeconomic rebellion, not a violent rebellion, but to put that rebellion down before it turns into a violent overthrow situation. Exactly. And, and so in a way that, you know, capitalism reaches a certain point where it just doesn't work anymore. And so you need to violently oppress people in order to keep the system going. And, and so in order to have a conversation about actual fascism, which is taking place in America, you have to also start talking about economic structures. And when you start having conversations about making economic changes, I, I have bad news for everybody. That gets messy. What is the rhetoric, though, so that, that gets people to act against their own interest, right? Because when there's this economic inequality, many of the people facing the business end of that inequality are the people voting for Trump. I mean, I know it's not people under 50,000 didn't vote for him this time in the way that they did, but it's still a lot of disenfranchised white people who um, are, are buying into a series of lies or beliefs that, like you said, are the equivalent of the armband. What kind? What is the rhetoric that they want that they buy into grab onto that that stops them from from reasoning so there's a couple of things happening there um first and foremost uh, again going back to my family who is absolutely radicalized i mean i can't go on social media without seeing the people i grew up with and the people i love sharing white supremacist memes mm. q memes all of that right um 
the, these conspiracy theories, um, they fill a vacuum of ignorance. You know, um, so for instance, uh, I grew up in the 1980s going into the 1990s. Um, you know, my factory family's job started going away because of things like free trade and sort of economic shifting. Um, it's really hard to understand free trade and economics. I mean, I've studied it and it still sometimes, you know, makes me feel like I'm going colorblind. Yes. Um, but it's a lot easier to say, no, there's a new world order. It's Satan, conspiracies and all of this stuff. It makes it a lot simpler to wrap your head around. And it also says there is a group that if you could get to and you could kill them, things would be better. Well, that's one part. Second of all, they grew up with, you know, Reaganism telling them the government can't actually do anything for them. We also live in a political system where it's almost impossible to enact change or to alleviate suffering. I think the pandemic has made this abundantly clear. But they have sort of embraced, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think that if you went to my hometown and talked to people and said, are you engaged in a postmodern action? I don't think they would tell you that they are. But you know, it's something like Trump with the wall. Trump was never going to build the wall. The wall was never actually going to be constructed. It was a metaphor. And to vote for Trump wasn't to vote for your life to get better. It was to vote to make your opponent's lives worse. You know, and, and it, it's basically this idea that the government can't, can't make anything better, but can make things worse for certain people. And so as a result, it turns into, you know, what people would call culture wars or tribalism. And of course, a lot of this has to do with Newt Gingrich. But I think in a way yes, it is it, it is a symbolic battle and, and an impotent battle that they are raging. So that explains, and I, I agree with it. I guess I want to ask you two questions. One, I would like your working definition of fascism, modern fascism, or just your, your working definition of that or authoritarianism, either one. But then um, I'd also like your take on the... So the senators uh, all clearly know that Trump lost the election and they yep. clearly know that there was not widespread voter fraud. And I would love your take on what is actually going on there. If you can put it in some historical perspective, which is their willful, their, their the sort of justification for the willful disregarding of the wishes of the populace. Yeah. So first and foremost, it took me a long time to really understand exactly what fascism is, because fascism, when you hear it, it sounds like a bunch of violent thugs, which is yes. part of it. Right. But what I've actually found is there's a few elements that take place in this. Um, fascism needs uh, a national myth of exceptionalism. It needs this idea that a country is special for a reason and that it is destined to do great things. And so eventually what ends up happening is that these nations that are supposed to do great things, they have a moment of faltering, right? They have a moment where things get a little bit worse. They lose a war or suddenly the economy bottoms out. Fascism needs an explanation for why that has happened. And it always ends up being a conspiracy theory that involves an internal enemy, oftentimes a, a Jewish puppet master type situation yes. that works in concert with leftist traitors, right? The Clinton, uh, Clinton crime web or whatever you want to throw in here, Bill Clinton and the New World Order, whatever. And then eventually on the other side are people of color who, because this is a white supremacist phenomenon, they believe that they are incredibly susceptible to being manipulated and that they need white people as a paternal protector. And this goes back, I mean, if you really want to see the, the trajectory of this, it goes back to like the Confederacy, 
right? And, and that sort of a triangle of a conspiracy theory allows the fascist to preemptively attack people using this narrative that there's, a, there's an invisible attack on everybody. And so what ends up happening is an actual war over reality. And, and Trump, right. and, and, and I don't think Trump would be able to explain this to you. I don't think if you ask Donald Trump for an explanation of fascism, he could even get near it. But he's an intuitive fascist. He believes what he believes, and he doesn't want anyone to disagree with him. And he's willing to be violent. To well, I, I would, I would, I would argue one thing. I would argue that what he believes doesn't matter. It's all exactly. about what he, what he feels, and what he, to me, what I, I think is, uh, what what he what he feels is an emptiness that can only be filled by him being uh, the subject of mass adulation, conversation, praise in the center, and powerful. And, and it's he, not even enough. Right, correct, correct. And, and so does a fascism, so when, in terms of the working definition of fascism, so those are the conditions, precedent, that you just laid out. But then actually, what is fascism? What is a fascistic regime in, in a supposed democracy? So here is, unfortunately, this is not going to be the most uh, sunny afternoon thing I'm going to say in our conversation. Sure. Um, the really frightening thing that I'm becoming more convinced of, and the people that I talk to and converse with are becoming convinced of, is that Trump is actually a precursor to something worse. Yeah. Uh, the problem with Trump, and, and this goes back to, and, and I'll go ahead and loop in the answer to the second question about what is happening right now with this ongoing coup. People keep asking me, is this a coup or is it a grift? It's both. And one of the things that you actually find with Donald Trump is he's a total con man. He's, he's lost in his own reality. And, and you can't even tell where the, the lie begins and the delusion begins. You know, there, there's no, it, it's an Aurora Boris. It just, it just eats itself. There's no way to tell whatsoever yes. at any time. He, and, and the only thing I could actually liken it to that makes any sense whatsoever is anybody who knows anything about professional wrestling, which is yes. a group of people who are perpetual grifters and they know that they're grifting people, but the longer that they stay within the grift, the more that they forget what the grift is and where reality is. And so what you actually find, and this goes back to how he became president of the United States and why he's probably a precursor versus the actual genuine article. Donald Trump didn't really want to become president of the United States. It was a marketing opportunity. It was a way to reinvigorate his brand. It was a way to make himself more powerful and also sort of jack himself into the national zeitgeist. And, you know, it was an addiction. And the more that it went on, the, the worse that the grift got. And then eventually it became, no, I actually am running for president. And here we are. With this coup, Trump either knows that he didn't lose the election or it doesn't matter if he knows he lost the election. He has to behave like somebody who didn't lose the election. He has to pretend that it was stolen from him. Meanwhile, there's an entire constellation, an entire solar system of grifters around Donald Trump. There's the Republican Party that needs Trumpists to continue voting for Republicans, needs to continue fundraising for Republicans. They also, they're terrified that he's going to shine his spotlight on them. There's also an entire down rank, like pyramid scheme level style of grifters. Everyone from Mike Flynn to Alex Jones to some guy who has yes. 15 people on his YouTube channel who probably know that Trump lost the election, but they need to continue their economic incentives. The frightening thing with this is all of this grifting and all of this lying 
they're they're not necessarily trying to overturn the election, but they'd be fine if they did, right? If they just backed up into a stolen election and broken democracy, they would be fine. But what is actually happening right now is that Trump and all of these grifters around him are exposing weaknesses in a system that a person who actually does want power and actually does want the responsibility of some sort of a fascist authoritarian regime, they're going to be able to reverse engineer this thing, recognize where the weaknesses in the fence are, a la Jurassic Park, and they're going to figure out how to enact the things that they want. And these these looming crises that we have, economic, um, uh, environmental, societal, political those things are going to make the tensions worse and they're going to make the incentives for someone to go ahead and burst through that fence even larger. Right. Uh, the the magical, uh, I agree, that's not a sunny thought on a, a Sunday late afternoon. And I understand it and I've given voice to similar. The one thing, and this isn't um, denial or rationalization, the one thing that I don't yet see uh, in the Republican Party today is someone with Trump's charisma and natural sense of the crowd. So that Ted Cruz, of course, would like to be a despotic leader, but I am not sure he can ever galvanize people because they see this Harvard law, even if he's saying what they want to hear, ultimately they know Ted Cruz isn't on their side. Yes. Isn't part of the grift of the fascistic leader that in the beginning, they really do make the working man, the white working man, believe they're on their side. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's becoming clear is that the Republican Party has lost any remaining faith that the Trump base even tried to hang on to. I mean, one of the things we're watching during this, you know, so-called stop the steal thing is you're watching people march against the Republicans, turn off Fox News, they're moving to other places. I think that we have a couple of candidates within the Republican Party who would love, love, love to take over where Trump left off. You know, you have a Tom Cotton who is just just an absolute fascist. You have Ted Cruz, who, if you if you read between the lines, believes he was put on the earth by God to be a Christian president and, you know, usher in some sort of new Christian regime. Um, you know, and then you've got uh, Mike Pence, who, you know, has all of the personality of a wet marshmallow. It's there's there's no possibility for the Republican Party, I think, to reinvigorate the energy of Trump. But I think what we're going to watch over the next few years is I think Trump is going to act as an anti-president. I think he's, you know, he's going to do all these hit. Probably one network will give him a fake Oval Office where he can talk about what's going on without any consequences whatsoever. They'll play hail to the chief when he comes in. They'll talk about him as if he's a president in exile. And you will see on the right a, um, a flirtation or a courtship with people trying to earn his favor. I don't think he'll run in 2024. Um, Maybe he will. Maybe I could be wrong on that end. But I think we're going to see somebody probably pop up that isn't part of the Republican structure. Uh, If I had to put money on it right now, if I had to put some money in Vegas on who that would be, it would be someone like a Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, yes. Yeah, it would would be somebody who... And and, and Tucker, Tucker is really, for someone who, you know has incredible wealth because of fish sticks. You know, he's somebody who has like a pretty incredible understanding of what is actually going on with Trump's base. Um, He is able to sort of thread the needle in a way that I don't even think Trump was able to, which is, you know, he's able to talk about 
the frustration of white middle America to pit them against corporations, but also make them in partnership with corporations and against both parties. And it's it's a sort of it's sort of a new arithmetic that I don't think many people are capable of right now. So that that's probably where my money would be. I just want to double back when you said the thing about, you know, members of your family, people you love as QAnon people. And you also said that getting involved, researching, writing, studying gave you a sense of having some agency. So now you know more than, uh, you know, 99.8% of the people about the history of our country as related to these questions. What happens when you try to engage with, in, a, in a calm, measured manner? with these people that you love who see the world so differently from you? Do they just think, uh, oh, poor Jared? Like, what What do they believe? Uh, no, they think I'm a pretty honest broker. And and I'll tell you why that happens. Um, on, on one hand, I'll, I'll start with the QAnon and white supremacy radicalization. I, it took me a while to get to this, but eventually what happened was I realized that as they were sharing these memes and as they were becoming radicalized and saying some really awful fascistic things, that that almost always coincided with personal crises. Sure. You know, there, there would be something going on in the family, whether or not it was uh, an economic crisis or a personal crisis, a divorce, an estrangement, some, something happening in the family. And I realized that, you know, while I'm watching this, and I'm talking about like on Facebook, like the reason why I keep Facebook is so I can communicate with certain parts of my family. And what I start, started to realize is I wasn't reaching out to my family when they were going through these things. In fact, when they started sharing those memes, it made me repel from them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It made me not want to talk to them. It made me want yeah. to push them away. And all of a sudden, I had this moment where I was like, no, I'm contributing to their alienation. Like, I used to be the person in the family who sort of pulled people back from the edge, the sort of catcher in the rye that made sure that they didn't go over the edge and, you know, embrace total white supremacy and conspiracy theories and radicalization. So what I've realized with a lot of this is if you go in just sort of trading talking points and, you know, if I, if I texted one of these people or message one of these people and I said, you know, Trump's a criminal and he should go, go to jail, they'll respond with some sort of well-worn, you know, retort, something about Obama or Clinton or whatever, because what's actually happened in our politics is it's turned into a trench warfare style conflict. Yes. You don't move, you can't move. So what I've actually been able to do is I talk to the people who I know, and it's not just family, it's community members, people I went to school with, people I know. Um, I've started talking to them just first as people, just having conversations about who we are. And in the past, before the pandemic, you know, I used to have a lot of success with this, like going into a bar and having a beer with a person and not talking about politics at first, talking about what's going on in their lives, talking about what our shared experiences are. And when they realize you're not a deep state agent who's there to brainwash them or, you know, drink their adrenochrome, what ends up happening yeah. is you can start to have conversations about the fact that the politics that we're experiencing isn't about red and blue and Democrat and Republican. That's a false reality. That's a false illusion that really doesn't even begin to cover what's going on. Our politics and, our, and, our, and the, the point of our moment is about the rich and the powerful making sure that the people below them are kept within a frame of powerlessness. And the people who have been radicalized by this, they're ready to have that conversation. Right. And when you start having a conversation about actual American history, and there's a lot of blame to go around, I mean, let's not lie. 
when you start having a conversation about the games that the rich and powerful have played in order to maintain their wealth and their power, all of a sudden you are having a conversation steeped in class consciousness as opposed to Democrat versus Republican. And it sort of short circuits the whole thing a little bit. And I think that that's sort of part of the key to how we move forward and how we sort of get out of this trap that we're in. Go further on that. How does it, how does that work beyond um, the individual one-on-one conversation? Or is really that the only, is the one-on-one empathetic conversation the only way to, to to hope that the person you talk to goes back home and talks to their people? No, I think you got to chew gum and walk at the same time. Um, I, I think one of the, the larger problems in American society is a feeling of alienation yes. and, and hopelessness. Uh, you know, and, and of course, this hasn't been helped by the online culture. It hasn't been helped by, you know, social media, all of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I think that particularly with incredible, cruel inequality, it makes us feel alone. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research with like former neo-Nazis and white separatists and white terrorists. And they tell me left and right that that's how they get people. They find, you know, white people who feel powerless and alienated and they tell them that they're powerful and they bring them along into a group. So first and foremost, I think we have to repair our communities. We, we have to reach out and start to trust one, in, one another in a way that Reaganism made us stop doing. You know, we have to stop being worried that everyone is our economic competitor and start to realize that communities actually do matter. On a large scale, you know, I, I keep having people um, ask me, it's like, how do you get people to start realizing the truth? How do you get people to start recognizing facts? And, you know, I think in a way, the left has sort of started to believe that if you just compile facts in the right package and you find the right words for them, that you'll win some sort of tug of war of ideology and and suddenly people will realize that they've been wrong. But it, it doesn't work like that because unfortunately for a lot of different reasons, psychological and economic, people base their politics around their idea of self. I mean, the right right now, particularly in middle America, is a bunch of people who feel very afraid and frustrated and emasculated who are buying big giant trucks, collecting guns simply to make themselves feel like bigger men, you know, and there's no amount of talking to them that's going to change. Well, I see that, Jared, I see that I'm where I'm living right now is a few hours out of the city in uh, a really rural place, Uh, the city being New York, where I, I live most of the time. But I rented a house a few hours out of the city during the pandemic. And um, there were huge Trump truck parades through these towns. Yep. And uh, one time, I haven't talked about this in the podcast, my wife and I were bicycling, you know, and wearing helmets and bicycling. And I guess it was obvious that we we were what we are, you know. In fact, I I said to Amy afterwards, you wearing a Biden t-shirt? She wasn't, but... (laughs) It was clear that we were, you know, um, a certainly weaselly American Jews on a bicycle wearing helmets when they were all in their trucks. And what I saw as they were honking at us and screaming at us and giving us the curse finger from their hundreds of trucks was uh, as a political movement, it's the only one I can really remember in my particular lifetime where 
there's no sense of them inviting most political movements invite you in and this is a political movement that just wants to shove you down yes and that to me is part of what makes it a fascistic uh authoritarian political movement because there's not even the pretense of this being better for everybody as you said earlier it is this will you know go you go fuck yourself you fucking liberal uh liberal jews on your bicycles who think you have to wear a helmet uh, because uh, 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 you've kept us down, y'all have kept us down for too long. And so I don't understand how to bridge that gulf. Yeah, so there, so people have asked me, they're like, should we be reaching across the aisle? Should we be listening? And my first answer is, no, you shouldn't be listening to these people. I think that's part of the problem, is for way too long, we have listened to all of this and treated it like it's a valid experience or a reality. It's propaganda. We have yes. we have a cult. We have a we have a cult that has built itself around weaponized propaganda and weaponized mythologies. Listening to them and treating it like it's a valid experience only gives them strength. I mean, unfortunately, our media gave. I mean, Donald Trump got, got billions of free you know advertising yes. going into 2016 because all of this stuff just got regurgitated and completely uh, you know listened to and aired on our airwaves. What I keep trying to tell people is we have to resolve the underlying conditions that lead to the radicalization. So we we can either devolve into a politics where it's like whoever wins the election gets to say, fuck you, your life is now worse on the other side. Or we can do something. And I think that um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt showed us the way. And I, and I think this is really, really important. You know, when you read in history books about the New Deal, it makes it sound like the New Deal saved the economy, right? And it helped the economy, but it didn't exactly save the economy. What it did was it took all of the young men who would have joined fascist organizations and, and put them to work and put them to work and gave them a job and gave them economic livelihood. And that's the whole thing is you're a lot less likely to go to Washington, D.C. and stab a bunch of people and beat the living hell out of people walking down the street if you have a job. Right. If, if you have somewhere to be. I, as I told you, I didn't get to finish the book because I just started it. And then I was like, dude, come podcast. But, um, you know, I'm deep, I'm deeper into it now. So I don't know how much you talk about Hoover, but Hoover is not a bad analog to Trump because he was a crooked businessman yep. also. A, a grifty, crooked businessman, which I think in the, in the passing of time, most of us only know him as an incompetent. Most of us don't know that Hoover was a grifter, that he was a businessman who made deals with banks and um, really fucked over the nation. And and there are similarities to to you know and and um race and and was very much um, you know for the separation of yeah. the rich and the poor and all that stuff as uh, in the ways that Trump is. Well, this is something important. I'm so glad you brought up Hoover, Hoover because, you know, we're, we're in this pandemic moment. And I think, you know, watching on and it's traumatic enough as is experiencing it. 
but going online and just sort of watching people who are indifferent to it or the fact that nobody yes. can get help, nobody will do anything about it. And if you actually go back to the Great Depression, I think it's a wonderful analog because you actually see that even as you're experiencing one of the worst economic crises of the moment, you still have assholes like Hoover and the banks and the corporations who are like, we don't need to do anything. This thing is fundamentally sound. Just, you know, yeah. go over in a corner and die. And what you actually find is that there is finally a moment and, you know, FDR had to fight tooth and nail to be able to pass anything, to get any sort of relief or to rein in the banks and the corporations and, and, and the stock market. And what ends up happening is there is this massive stimulus movement, again, to put people to work. And, and suddenly what happens is it changes the narrative of what America is because what you actually find again with this fascistic uprising is you see that people start doubting that the system would ever help them so they need to take over the system and they need to use the system as a weapon which is what's what's happening right now so i try and tell people this so right now let's take one of the biggest problems in the world, in human history, let's take uh, global climate change, right? If you went to my hometown and you like held up a sign that said global climate change is real on Main Street, which by the way, has no shops that are open because Walmart has gutted it and, you know, eaten it alive. Yes. If you went out there with a sign that said global climate change is real, you, you would have problems, right? It would be an issue. But I'll tell you what, if you went to the old GE factory that hasn't had anything in it for decades, and you suddenly gave a bunch of people jobs to make windmills or solar uh, solar panels or some sort of an alternate energy, I'll tell you what, that town's going to believe in. That town's going to believe in global climate change. So what we need to do is we yes. need to move beyond the delusional propaganda that and, and this delusional alternate reality we're in. And we need to start treating the underlying conditions. That way we can tamp down the temperature because I, I, I have bad news. Like what you find in situations like we're in mass terror attacks like Oklahoma City. That's where we're going. If this thing, if the temperature doesn't get lowered and if we don't start dealing with it. I'm, I don't disagree. I know that that's yeah. right. But I'll say I don't find it much of a panacea when you say, you know, treat the underlying stuff because we have a Republican controlled Congress, right? Uh, right. Or Senate. Um, and so in the short term, over the next, like, like here's a question from, from a rhetorical standpoint. Sure. Do you agree with the, the position that Biden and Harris, who, uh, you know, a big supporter, uh, but uh, do you agree with the, the choice they've made to not uh, combat Trump's words at all during this, to not combat the the Republican administration's uh, words during all of this. And the posture they've taken, which is, we don't have to do anything because we know we won. Uh, I understand it as a ga as game. I understand the gamesmanship, but I do wonder about the void that's being filled only by the rhetoric from the side saying we was cheated. And, and I, and I just as a student of this shit, when, you know, I love the part of your book about the Federalist Papers and what they really were and that coup. And I want to talk a minute about that before we're done. So 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 how do you look at it when you look at it from a historical perspective, this this the way that they are they're hanging back? Well, you know, I, I go back to President Obama's term and, and, you know, liberals would scream at the TV and say, get angry. Tell these people where to go. Tell them to go to hell. Tell them they're liars. And of course, Obama had to walk a, a, a rhetorical tightrope 
right? Because yes. as the first African-American president, um, obviously there were a lot of people who didn't care for that. He was painted as a Marxist revolutionary who was going to plunge America into Sharia law. So you kind of have to walk a tightrope with that. In this situation, you have Joe Biden, who is going to become president. And right now, the story is that he is an illegitimate president and he is the beneficiary of a coup. So it's it's a really hard line to talk or line to walk. What I would say rhetorically that needs to happen is it's on a couple of fronts. And I actually think the Democratic Party is bad about this. I think the Democratic Party fails in a lot of these sort of more nuanced things that the Republican Party, I think, uh, usually knocks out of the park. I think there are a lot more sort of disciplined in how to message things and how to hit things from different uh, arenas. I think Biden should be making fun of Trump. I think he should, I think, I think he should be every day laughing at this whole thing because the, you know, I thought, I thought back going to the debates, somebody needs to look at Donald Trump and be like, I really pity you. You're just a sad little man and you're never going yes. to enjoy anything and you're so pathetic and I just feel just awful for you. And, and you know, that's one way that you deal with a bully, but it's one way you actually take the winds out of a sail of a potential dictator, right? Is you actually make them a source of ridicule because what we actually find is authoritarianism and fascism is actually about weakness. It's not about strength. It's weakness masquerading as strength. But I think the Democratic Party, while while Biden tries to play that strategy out, the Democratic Party should be like, listen, I don't think this is going to work, but this is an incredible attack on democracy. And we need to make it clear that the Republicans who signed on to this, the 100 plus people who signed this brief and the ones who are talking about secession now, that this isn't just a broaching of norms. This is like literal treasonous fascistic behavior. So I think that it has to be nuanced, but I, I have not been very happy with how it's happened so far. I know, I know it's a, again, it's walking a tightrope, but I've not been thrilled with no, it. No, me, I haven't either. Um, on the one hand, I know that, there, that Vice President-elect Harris is an incredible fighter and that if she felt that this anything was actually threatened, I think she would be finding a way to mount a counterattack, but it it does strike me as the the narrative coming out of the Trumpistas is the sort of prevailing narrative. Though I love, if people who are listening to this haven't watched Neil Katyal's Instagrams where he talks about the legal case and calls Trump the biggest loser, he's doing, and he's my dear friend, he's doing exactly what I think the Democrats um, ought to be doing. Can you talk a little bit about Ben Franklin's concern um, about this being a possible fate of the country if regular Americans are allowed to vote and how you square that with the rest of sort of what we believe about him in that time? Well, you know, when I started writing American Rule, um, I thought I knew American history. Like I thought I'd find some stuff, you know, some things here and there that I really didn't know. And so I went back just to the founding and it was almost immediate. I, I had no idea how the country was founded. I just knew, you know, what I saw in HBO miniseries and what I was taught, you know, in some really bad classes. Yes. And what you actually find is that the founding of the country is really complicated, you know, and we're sort of taught this story that the Declaration of Independence was like, you know, passed on a Monday and then like the Constitution was on a Tuesday. But it was actually years and years between the two. And the Constitution itself, uh, you know, we always call it the Constitutional Convention. It it wasn't. It was supposed to be uh, a a revision of the uh, Articles of Confederation. 
And they actually had no authority to write a new constitution. But James Madison and a group of uh, like-minded individuals got together in Philadelphia and created a new constitution that made sure that the wealthy, powerful white men of the country were to maintain control. Now, there was derision and division in the chambers. The one thing that they could all agree on is that normal people shouldn't have any say in how things were run. Uh, The way the government was actually constructed was meant to be an illusion that made it seem like normal people were able to control government while making sure that every step along the way that they were completely confounded. This is why you have a Senate and a House of Representatives. It's why you have an electoral college. Um, So this was the argument that everybody agreed with, as well as white supremacist um, sort of jousting over these things. Well, Ben Franklin has these weird moments in the founding of the country where on one hand, so he's at this meeting and he's watching all this take place and and he warns multiple times about, you know, multiple things. On one hand, you know, as as the founders are sort of just talking mad shit about normal people, he chimes in and he's like, do not forget that normal people helped you win the revolution. And that's what he says. And then later on, of course, he talks about the possibility that, and and a lot of the founders admit this too, that if America wasn't careful, that it was either going to turn into an aristocracy or a dictatorship. And I think, and and this actually is something I've started to realize um, since I wrote American Rule, which is that we're actually seeing all, both of those things come together into fruition at once. Yeah, that's clear in the book, by the way. Reading the book, that's what I came away with, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, while, while meanwhile, we have a lot of people who are like, oh, the founders were geniuses and divinely inspired. What we've actually come to is a moment where the limitations of their imagination have sort of damned us. You know, people say all the time, they're like, oh, I think they'd roll in their graves if they knew Donald Trump was president. And it's like, no, if you went back in time and you said the president of the United States is a, you know, a billionaire with quotes around it, a rich white man, one of the leaders in terms of wealth in the country, they'd be like, oh, it's in great hands. They weren't able to think about the possibility that wealth wasn't a signifier of competence or allegiance to a country or basic decency. And they also did not understand that there would be these factions, factionalism and, and parties that would take place that actually undermine everything that they did. And, and, and that actually came back to bite them in the ass at the turn of the century. I mean, it, it lasted like 12 years before you had your first instance of factionalism kind of screwing everything up. Right. Well, that's a, a fascinating, I want everyone to read this book. I mean, uh, that's a fascinating section of the book. And if you've seen Hamilton, you understand a little bit about it. But um, or if you've seen or read about Andrew Jackson, you understand uh, stuff that happened later. But y- the the way you talk about the Jefferson Burr thing in the book and how close we came at that point to this all, fra- you know, fracturing. Um, well, it gives you so it gives one some hope, even though those things you know, led to a lot of problems 60 years later, but it does give you some hope that, or me anyway, some hope that we can get through this. Well, I'll just, I'll just say real fast because listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a doomsayer who like, you know, loves coming on podcast and being like, no, a fascist takeover is imminent. I, I actually am very hopeful. And, and the reason I'm hopeful is because history shows, and, and again, American rule, it's the history of America, uh, you know, going back to 1776. I'm doing this new project that goes back to, you know, ancient Rome and is working its way through. And what you actually find throughout human history, it's not just recent history, but all of history, 
is you have moments where it feels hopeless and like the citizenry is powerless. And what always ends up happening is that there is a frustration or a spark of realization where people suddenly remember, oh, no, that's right. We're incredibly powerful when we come together, when we find solidarity and organization, and then the pendulum swings. I would actually say that the moment that we're in right now is almost a, a, a perfect analog back to the Gilded Age. And, you know, what you actually end up seeing with the Gilded Age, of course, is the rise of progressivism and grassroots organization. And, and suddenly you realize that the country can change in massive, massive ways. So I actually think there is hope, but we're in a very narrow window. And I and, and this is this is why I talk about this is I think we're not going to recognize that window or the importance of that window if we don't also recognize the possible danger that awaits us yes. if we don't actually take this thing on. And that possible danger is if we don't remain incredibly vigilant, not just over the next three weeks or four weeks, but over the next four years. Yeah. And, you know, I, I this is one of the th damning things that I think that our country's politics gets wrong. They treat it like seasons in a in a sports league right yes. it's like you you, you yes. start off in the preseason and then you get to the super bowl and then you're off for a few months but instead it's a you know this four-year thing where we show up we do an election and then we worry about politics later um biden winning didn't make everything better it gave us another chance it gave us a moment to take a breath and try and get this thing back on track and hopefully make some massive needed changes. And I tell everyone who will listen to me, Trump is not the disease. He's a symptom of something much, much larger that has taken place in this country over generations. It just so happens that he came along at the right time when the system was starting to fail in a massive way. So, yeah, that's exactly right. The next four years and then the four years after that, unfortunately, politics doesn't have an offseason. So we have to all stay vigilant. You know, four years ago, I almost stopped doing the podcast. Uh, I took a couple months off after the election and I because I felt like, well, what I, I felt so depressed by what I knew the next four years were going to be. Uh, and I kept doing it in the hopes that sometimes I could have conversations like this that would uh, be useful and that would point the way forward. And uh Jared, your book is great. I'll be finishing it tonight or tomorrow, uh, and I'll go back and read the book before this, which is all about how the Trump thing happened, too. You're a great follow on Twitter. People should follow you. Uh, what's your handle? It's not your full name, right? It's <laughs> Yeah, it's it's J.Y. Sexton, and if people are interested, I also host a podcast called The Muckrake Podcast. So you can check out the podcast. You can go find Jared on uh, Twitter. You can read his books. I'm excited to read your fiction also, uh, though uh, I think I'm going to deal with the really depressing <laughs> nonfiction first. And uh, hey, man, thanks for coming on in such a spur of the moment thing and just having this conversation with me. I feel like I think it's incredibly useful for us all to remain vigilant and for us to understand the history and the ways that we got here. And and maybe we can do this in like six months as we're um, a bit of the way into the Biden administration and just talk about where we feel like we are. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I was one of those people who was waiting on you to come back in the podcast. So I'll just say that I'm happy that you did. And literally anytime, happy to do it. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. You can find Jared online. Find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. And uh, all right, everyone. Talk to you soon.